oh, I think we have to do this. Since Larry's not here and we have to put good guilt on you. Everybody's going to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb. Ready? Ready? One, two, three. Mary had a little lamb. All right. Okay, so this is what happens now. The guilt comes. So now we know everybody can sing, so Joyce's table better be full. <laughs> oh, Thank you for your prayers. Peggy and I have been on the road a couple weeks traveling with our youngest swimmer. If you don't know that, I have a freshman in college at the University of Texas, and he's entering his end of his first year, and so they're getting into uh, what we call NCAA championships for swimming. So I know Peggy was telling me that all everybody was praying for him, and I hope you're praying for the parents because we need it more than him. Because, see, as parents, you sit up in the stands. You can't say anything. You can't do anything. You just have to die up there and watch this thing happen the whole time. And it is really, really hard. In fact, I had gone and got my blood pressure taken. It was like 160 over 90. And he's like, do you always do this? And I said, well, it's kind of normal when you're sitting in the stands. You can't do anything. You just watch your kid down there. You know, they're screaming and yelling. First of all, I wouldn't know what to say to him anyway because I really don't know much about the sport. And second of all, we just get in the way of his professional coaches, that would say. So we just be quiet back there, and we die. So, But thank you for your prayers. Um, we just found out that he had made his NCAA cuts, so he's going to the championships in a couple weeks, which is good for him. If you know anything about swimming, it's brutal. You work your whole entire life training and training and training and training and training for a quarter of a second to be taken off your time. And if you know how much a quarter of a second is, that's like this much of a hand touching the wall. So this much of a hand goes to the championships, and this much of a hand is done. And they call that losing. It's just, it's, it's a brutal sport. But they work so, so hard. and It's a very disciplined sport. So I like to see that. I love disciplined things, and so I like to see that. But anyway, thank you for all that you do. Um, we were thinking this week or the last couple of weeks about what we might share with you and talk with you about. And I mean, when you look at our country and you look at what's going on and, and um, you watch, I don't care what political spectrum you're a part of or anything like that, it just seems like things are out of control, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it's just, it's like, you, you know, I don't even watch TV because that gets my blood pressure higher than 160. But it's this whole idea that things are in such disarray. What are we supposed to be doing with all of this? Well, we, you know, we have thoughts what we might do with it, and we, we think we should probably do something about something, but what do you really do when you don't know what to do? I mean, what are we supposed to do? You know, it's not politics, it's... A lot of times we're talking morality and spirituality, which is so much more important than anything that's going on. Morality and spirituality, really, really important. So I thought this morning that we would discuss what to do when you don't know what to do out of a story that you guys probably all have read and heard and studied for, oh, I don't know, probably our whole lives as believers. And even if you've been in different 
schools and, you know, growing up as a child in Shabbat school. This story has been told to you many, many times, but I thought I'd take it from a little bit different perspective tonight. And that was the story of David and Goliath, or today, I should say. You know, David and Goliath, it's a very interesting story. And a lot of times, if you read the papers and you read sports, a lot of sports writers use the analogy of David and Goliath, right? A big, huge sporting event, you have boxing, they always use it, David and Goliath, where you have the underdog, and then you have the big, bad boxer, and they all come in, and how strong the underdog was to take over this giant of you know, a sporting event. But that's really not the key point in the story of David and Goliath. The key point was that the power and the presence of the Lord will fight your battles. See, when you don't know what to do, I'll give you the punchline at the end of the message we can go eat right now, is that you trust in the Lord. You hear Larry say this all the time. He prays for the advantage. And I hear a lot of people think, oh, well, Larry has something special. There's nothing special about praying for the advantage. We all have the opportunity to have an advantage in this world. That advantage is the power and the presence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit in your life. It is. We all can wake up every morning and say, Lord, fill me. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad the day was before, and my days can be sometimes tragic, no matter how you feel throughout the night, you can wake up in the morning and ask the Lord to empower you for this day. Because as believers, that's the advantage. Somebody who hasn't received Yeshua as their Savior is, doesn't have the availability to have this advantage. It's fantastic. It's the simplest thing in the world we can do. It takes one thing that's so hard, humility. We have to stop for a second. We have to take a deep breath. And we have to let everything go of our preconceived ideas, our preconceived notions, what we feel should happen or shouldn't happen, how we want to attack a situation, let it all go and say to the Lord, fill me. Fill me with your spirit. That's a gift that God can give us every single day. It's fantastic. Many times being so busy, we forget about these things. So in David's case, you have a young teenage shepherd boy whose brothers are out on the battle line. In fact, Larry, I think, is going to be in the Valley of Elah here this next week. It's an incredible spot if you've been to Israel. You can, you can actually sit on a campground that overlooks the whole area and you can actually picture this valley and this battle that was being taken up. Our people were on one side, standing back, equipped to go to battle. The Philistines on the other side, with some, if we don't know how many, but many giants, they would call them. Men who were over nine feet tall. If you study the scriptures, you'll find out that they were the descendants of a race of people that were giants, almost superhuman in a sense. And on one side are the Philistines. On the other side is the Israelites waiting to go to battle. Well, they call this champion, his name is Goliath, to come out. He comes out and he starts to challenge for one person to come out and fight a battle. That will suffice this battle. Forty days, over and over, coming out. David, his nose is 
brothers are on the battlefront. He's tending his father's sheep, is called by his father to go bring food and some supplies up to the front of the lines. David grabs the food, leaves the, uh, the sheep with a, a tender, and he races up into the valley of the law and meets his brothers and meets and delivers all of the supplies that he would need. And David is hearing what not only is being screamed at them by Goliath, but also the response of his people. Scared, fearful, negative. A people who have seen the miracles of God years and years and years, but in a very you know, intense moment would not even trust in the Lord. And we say all the time, oh, well, you know, that's those guys, right? Those guys. But I think we do that every day, don't we? It's so easy when we know we should trust in the Lord, but then when something before us, we would call that an impossible situation is before us, we don't trust in him. And he didn't. So they didn't. So David, through a process of what we'll go through in a little bit, comes down, talks to Saul, who's the king of Israel and the leader of the army, and discusses with Saul how they should, he's going to handle it by his past experiences of taking sheep out of the mouths of bears and lions and killing them with his bare hands, really explaining under the power and the presence of the Lord what's available. So then Saul then puts David on the front line and says, okay, tries to clothe him in his battle array, which we know... The story doesn't work. He's not comfortable in it. Might be too big. We don't really know the situation. But David goes and grabs a sling, a stick, and five stones out of the valley, the brook of Elah right there where we go, and he goes to fight Goliath. He actually goes in an attack mode after Goliath. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going to go at, begin at verse 41, which kind of starts out, I think we start on verse 43 on the screen, but in verse 41 starts from where I'm talking about into this battle. That's on page 398 in your Bible programs if you want. Verse 41 says, Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to visit, come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines to this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's a good one. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by the sword, or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. 
and the stone sank deep into his forehead, so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him, and he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Let's pray. Father, in the next few moments that we have together, I pray that you would teach us, encourage us, that you would teach and open our eyes to the most incredible insights that you have this morning for each one of us in our battles against our own giants. I pray that you would give us hearing to hear and that you would illuminate our minds so that we could understand hope, the hope of our calling, which is in our Messiah, Yeshua. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in an impossible situation? (laughs) Does it happen a lot? Have you ever been in a, a situation where there is no way that you have any idea how you're going to handle it? In fact, you can't. I know. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's family. I mean, maybe it's marriage. You know, whatever it is, you wake up at night, it feels like your, you know, brain is coming out through your ears sometimes, you know. You can't sleep. You worry. This is is what believers do, right? We do it. We all do this. Why? Because these situations are so hard to understand. They're so difficult. But how do you handle an impossible situation? Really, how, how do you handle the giants that are be allowed to be for you, put before you in your own life? Well, when we deal with stuff like this, we need to first understand the bad first before the good. We need to understand what not to do. How many of you learn really well what not to do by watching people do the wrong things? It's very, very good, do you know that, to do that. It's very instructive. We, especially in our body of Mashiach, when we see our friends, family, you know, other believers do things wrong, we know it, we try to help, but they continue to do something wrong. You know, you can learn really well from not going down the same road that people do wrong by not doing it yourself. Uh, Sin likes to creep up on you and give you this kind of escape valve that when you watch one of your fellow believers do something wrong, you feel like, well, it's okay for you to do that. It isn't. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of, we will call humility, lest, he said, you be tempted with the same temptation that they're tempted with. That's a pretty hardcore charge for us as believers, that when we see family, friends, you know, People who we're going to be together with forever, believers, remember that, together forever. And we don't say something to them when they're doing something wrong, in love, in kindness, and we continually watch this go on and don't say it. What this rabbi says is, hey, this is what's going to happen. And remember, this was taught to him by the Ruach HaKadosh. The Holy Spirit told him these things, how to apply Torah principles. These are just Torah principles of forgiveness. So when you don't address somebody, 
and you continue to let that fester in your life, there's a possibility that you could fall victim to the same sinful behavior as the person who you are watching falling off the wayside. It's pretty hardcore. So let's look at first the problems we face in our understanding. When we're in an impossible situation, what are the problems that arise in how we think the process through? Number one, the issue of appearance. Chapter 17, verse 4, he says, Then the champion came out from the armies, plural. So there wasn't just a small group. We know from uh, chapter 13 that there were thousands and thousands of Philistines surrounding the whole hillsides all around the Valley of Elah. It wasn't a small deal. He says, And from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, nine and a half something feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels. That's 150 pounds. It's a big guy. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's like a 20-pound spearhead. So... We go, okay, so now we know one thing. By appearance, this was an ominous figure. He scared the people that were watching, that were listening. Sometimes in our misunderstanding, sometimes the problem of our understanding when we are in an impossible situation is we focus on the appearance of what we see before us. It happens. It's so simple. Because it's really going on. It's not like you can turn your brain off, right, and go, well, he is huge. He's not, he's saying these things, right? So our appearance would scare us to death. And it's struggling when we're in this situation. It's really difficult. You remember in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is powerful, living, powerful, and sharper than any two edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, to the joints and marrow. It is a judger of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The writer goes on to say, No creature, no, not anyone, is hidden from his sight. All things are laid naked and open unto the eyes of him who we have to deal with, basically. What does he mean when he says, For the word of God is living, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword? The word in the Greek there is speaking of a Roman two-edged sword, but the operative word there is any, meaning not just that sword, but any sword. And why would he say that to Jewish believers in the first century who are very, very accustomed to knowing what the story in Hebrews, because in chapter 3, he's discussing this journey through the wilderness and how they got to the enter, entering into the land of Canaan, and they sent the 12 spies in, and the 10 spies came back with a negative report. They said there, there was giants in the land. These giants had swords, big, huge swords. Goliath had a big, huge sword. This is 1100-something BCE. This was the Iron Age. It wasn't, we weren't talking about in this time with Goliath where they didn't have steel. They had shiny swords. The writer in Hebrews says, listen, don't see the sword through the bushes and let it scare you. Don't let the appearance 
of what's going on in this impossible situation stop you from going into the land? First thing we need to understand, don't let what you see make you fearful. Don't worry about what you see. Trust in the Lord. Number two, the first thing we talk about is appearance. The second thing is assumption. Verse 25 says, When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? The situation of assumption is very dangerous. You're assuming that you know what the end of the problem or the trial will be. You're really putting yourself in God's place. And this is a bad way to think through things. Why? Because you think, you react, you respond to what you assume is going to happen because it's a natural human response to protect ourselves. Did you know that? I mean, I think we do. If we look at how we respond to problems in our life, we're always trying to think through the situation and head it off, right? Hey, especially when you get into health things. Is it easy? When someone says you have cancer or you... You know, you have heart problems or something's going on to trust in the Lord no matter what. And you want to find the best doctor with the best stuff. And the be- Don't we do that? We try to find the best pharma. We try to find every- start working out. Right? <laughs> we get sick. And what's the first thing we want to do? Change our diet. Do this. Do that. We try to head something off at the pass. We assume we got to do something. And that's good. But I'm just saying that when you're in an impossible situation in your life, assumption that we know how this is all going to work out is a dangerous thing. Number three, the issue of apprehension. The situation situation of apprehension often causes us to question God and his purposes. We are in an impossible situation we can't see through it because we've assumed that it's happening for some reason. We've got to get through it. We then start to become apprehensive about the Lord's presence, about the Lord's control, about the Lord's reasons why we're in that situation. And this isn't easy, especially, I'm not just talking about maybe not having enough money to pay your credit card bill here. I'm talking about in an impossible situation where you're losing your whole entire business. You have no money. You're getting sued. You are, you know, whatever it is. Because that's the situation with Goliath. There was no way that they felt they would win this game. In Exodus chapter 14, it says, Then they said to Moses, The nation as it's coming through, out of Egypt, Going through these trials, they said to Moses, it is because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. That's our assumption. Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Forgetting how horrible it was in Egypt. See, a lot of times when we leave the world and we start getting comfortable in this bubble over here, the body of Mashiach, (laughs) we can kind of lose focus of how bad it was back there, can't we? So we become apprehensive. We start to not maybe do what we should do. Stop reading and studying the word. Don't want to hang around God's people very much. Just leave me alone. You know, I just want to kind of be by myself. Isn't that a comfortable place to be? You just kind of want to be, what you would say, remiss in your duties as a believer. But 1 Samuel verse 17, or chapter 17, 33, Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a, and I took a lamb from the flock and he took a lamb from the flock. Verse thirty five, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. That's a pretty hardcore shepherd, huh? And when he arose up against me, I seized him by his beard and I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And the uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Ooh, I like that. You see, you have a champion on your side. You have the living God behind you. The power and the presence of the Lord is with you, no matter what. He said, I will never leave you, nor what? Say it. He's always here. But our apprehension and our assumptions and our appearance of the situation can sometimes be a little bit concerning. But number four, the issue of anxiety. Now, this is a real thing. You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you in the last month have woken up in the middle of the night and having anxiety problems? Oh, the more pressure that we get in our country, the more this is going to happen to us. But you know what? It doesn't have to happen. We can deal with it. But it's real. It's a natural human response. Chapter 17, verse 11 says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They saw him. They heard him. They saw the situation around them. They became apprehensive and finally fearful. Verse 24 says, When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled and from him and were greatly afraid. It's a real thing. When you are in an impossible situation in your life, these are natural responses. But what are the Lord's purpose for these situations? We always say the Lord's in control, and we know he is. But when we get into an impossible situation, we start to go, oh, what are we supposed to do in this impossible situation? Is the Lord really doing what he's supposed to be doing here? We ask those questions all the time, don't we? I mean, is this really the way it's supposed to work out? How's, oh my gosh, is the Lord there anymore? Have you heard that one? I've heard it in my own ear many times. He's not there anymore. 
you're going to be on it on your own. You're going to go through it all by yourself. We feel lonely. We start looking at the people around us and asking the questions, where are all my friends? How come nobody's calling me anymore? How come? How come? Oh, we go inside. That's good for me because I'm an innie, so I can go in really well, and I can get really self-centered and feel sorry for myself. But what's the Lord's purpose in all of this? One, to they reflect the Lord's presence. When you're in an impossible situation, it will reflect the Lord's presence in the situation as you live through the situation. First Samuel 17, 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands. That doesn't mean David had some super... You know, he's not going to go out on his own enthusiasm and do this. That means that the power and the presence of the Lord is going to confound all those Philistines around them that they think they're in control. And it's the same thing for you and I. Paul said, all these things written in the Torah were written aforetime for our admonition. Everything that we read in the Old Covenant is written for us to look at as admonition, as encouragement. He said, so by reading and studying the scriptures, we may have hope. This is for us today. If you're in an impossible situation, know this first and foremost. You're in the situation, one, to reflect the Lord's presence in the situation. I like that. It's not so easy to think of when you feel like you're coming unglued, but it's pretty neat. Exodus 14, 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. When you talk about the fear of the Lord, I think I've told you this before, but it really comes, in my mind, into concept of this. Number one, It deals with the issue of being extremely respectful for the one that you're sitting with. In other words, some language experts might say it's a great reverence. It's an incredible respect for the one you're with. And we should respect the Lord in every single thing. That's one side of fear. But there's a very other emotional connection side of this issue of the fear of the Lord that I like to talk about. And that's a child sitting on his father's lap with a big, long beard. He's so close to his father because of his relationship. He can feel his breath. He loves to sit on his father's chest. And he will do whatever his father says because he loves him so much. He's obedient. And you know why? Because he knows that if he doesn't do what his dad said, there's going to be a penalty at the end of it. What's there not allowed to do anymore in the state of California, you know? (laughs) When you fear the Lord, you truly respect what he says. You do what he says. You're intimate with the Lord. And also you know that if you don't do what he says, there's a penalty phase at the end. Many times as believers, we get comfortable in our bubble because we feel like, oh, we can just go do what we want. After all, I'm in, right? We're in. Everything's good. We're in. 
But then when we get tempted with something or we struggle with something, we kind of in our minds go, well, you know, after all, I'm in the grace of the Lord. When we fear God, we respect what he says and we do what he says because we want to be close to him. We want to feel his breath. And the first thing is that the purpose that we're in is to reflect the Lord's presence. Number two, an impossible situation reveals the Lord's power and control. Samuel 17, 47, and they all assemble, and, they, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You're not in this alone. This isn't something that you have to deal with on your own. It reveals the Lord's power. Rabbi Shaul, Paul, who had been walking with the Lord for 30 years, had been on multiple journeys throughout, outside of Israel, throughout Asia Minor, sailing on boats, had been through enormous impossible situations. He had been put into positions and situations that I don't think any of us really could have handled. And he continued to share the gospel message according to the scriptures, and he continued to disciple people no matter what happened. He goes through this little town called Philippi in Asia Minor. And he's by a river, and he meets this gal And she sees him, they come together, they're friends, and another gal who's possessed comes alongside of her, and she starts screaming and yelling at Paul. So Paul, over a period of time, finally gets so tired of this, he looks at her and says, in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, come out of her, and she's delivered from this demon. The only problem was that there was a group of men that were utilizing her demonic presence to make money. They lost their livelihood in one moment. You know what happens? They take Paul, they take Silas, they throw him into prison. Before they do that, they beat them with rods. Till their backs are laid wide open. I mean, if you ever, you know what happens when you're beaten with rods. It's not some light little thing like a wooden spoon in your mom's kitchen. I mean, they beat you to your back is laid wide open, bleeding everywhere. Then they put them in chains and they put them in prison. No medical attention. Rats and bugs in the prison. You can only imagine. Their backs are laid wide open. They lock them up in chains. They put them in stocks. They hold them there. They're in a dark dungeon in the prison in Philippi. And what did they do? Well, look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. He said, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Messiah has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Wow. It wasn't that he was worried about his back being torn open or that I'm never going to get out of this prison. It wasn't that he was 
in all of these problems and focusing on them, he knew that this would reveal the Lord's power in everything. An impossible situation. Boy, that's a different perspective, isn't it? So when you're in an impossible situation, number two, it reveals the Lord's power and control. He's in control no matter what. Number three, they cause a response of praise and thanksgiving. Everybody have keys on them? You have keys in your pocket? You take out your keys and you look at your key. What's that key used for? Unlock something, first of all. So if it's a car, you know, now it's, you know, the thing that, you know, the thing that lights it, whatever that thing is. What do we call key fob or whatever right now? But before they had those things, there was real keys. A key for your house does what? What does it do? It unlocks the door to get inside. A key to your car unlocks the door to get inside your car. Start it up. One of the keys to success in an impossible situation is praise and thanksgiving. The simplest thing that's before us. You mean, I have to thank the Lord in the situation, not knowing what's going to happen outside of the situation? Am I being dumb on purpose? I mean, what am I supposed to do here? Yeah. Why? You recognize his control and power. You recognize he's revealing his presence in the situation. And you respond with thanksgiving. Psalm 9 really is seen as David's response to David, the story of David and Goliath. Psalm 9.1. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Not half heart. Everything that's within me, no matter how I feel, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what is happening in my life right now, I am going to give it all to the Lord with my whole heart, he said. I will tell of your wonders, how you did this thing with Goliath. It wasn't me, it was you. How I went and I saw that, that lion come take the sheep and grab it in its mouth and I ran after it. And I pulled it out of its mouth. And then I took it and I broke its neck. (laughs) I will tell the wonders of what you do constantly. I will be glad and exalt in you. To exalt something is like a burnt offering. It raises up praise to God. In everything, he said, I will do this. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Wow. Wow. The key to unlocking victory in an impossible situation is the simplest thing we can do is thanking the Lord for everything that he's done, everything that he's doing, and what he will do in the future, no matter what it is. If you're in an impossible situation, you can rest assured that you have the keys All you have to do is open it up. That's simple. I remember my oldest son, Austin. He played basketball his whole life. Started when he was four years old. I remember when I'd come home at lunchtime, he'd be out shooting baskets. 
Every day, shooting baskets. Afterwards, you come back, you go to his trainer, they work on footwork, they do this, they do that, they're stretching him out, doing all these things. All This was a young kid. He grew up full-time. This is what he did. He did school, and he played basketball. That's all he did. He had a goal in mind. His goal, his, his goal, he wanted to be playing college basketball. That was his goal. He didn't want to play pros. He wanted to play college basketball. I would watch him for hours and hours and hours. And he would train and he would play and he would travel. I mean, you talk about commitment. Unbelievable. Makes, gets recruited by college basketball. Put on the team. He's playing the college. First year is a little difficult as a freshman. Second year as a sophomore, he starts to get better. At the end of his sophomore year, he's going to start next year. His dream is now coming alive. He comes home for the summer. He is so excited because, you know, you work really hard. I mean, there's a lot of competition in sports. If you know college sports or professional sports, I mean, the competition is insane. So he's working out really hard. He gets to this place. He comes home for the summer. He's working out at a gym down in Laguna Beach with a trainer and another guy from West Virginia. And he reaches down and he picks up this medicine ball and he feels this little... And he comes over to the side after practice. And he goes, you know, it's really weird, but my whole leg feels numb. I'm like, really? Uh-huh. Oh, he goes, I'll figure it out. I'll you know, keep training. I'll see how it goes. A week goes by. He's like, I got to go get this checked. He goes and gets it checked. And he found out that he had a 1.5 centimeter blowout in his disc. And it was wrapping itself around his sciatic nerve. And he had to have surgery. His basketball career was over, they said. Uh, an impossible situation has just arisen. Everything that he worked for and hoped for and dreamed, and the, you know, whatever his desires were to do this, in one moment came to a crashing halt with an injury. An impossible situation. But you look at what he's doing now, He's at the Feinberg Center studying Jewish studies and getting his MDiv, right? (laughs) So life didn't end with an impossible situation. Everybody here and today, we all are in these situations. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't even know what the outcome of the situation will be or why it's there. But there's certain things that we need to understand to get through this. How do we act? What is our practice in an impossible situation? What should we do? It's a reiteration of what I just talked about. Number one, by recognizing the overall plan of God. A moment of exhale is a very good moment when you're in an impossible situation. I have to clear my thinking for a second. I have to understand that the Lord's in control. And this is part of his plan. Genesis chapter 50. Joseph. Boy, there's a guy who was in an impossible situation. His brothers all threw him down a pit. They were jealous of him. Didn't really like him at all. They sold him off into slavery with a caravan that was heading to Egypt. Imagine that, being a young boy. And having your brothers, who you loved, throw you in a pit, leave you for dead, but then kind of got a little guilty and then sold you off to a caravan and never to see you again, just to get rid of you. (laughs) 
And then he goes to Egypt. Can you imagine this young boy going into Egypt? What happens? He becomes the right-hand man to Pharaoh himself. And then he goes to prison under false pretenses. He goes to prison. Another impossible situation. And through years of being in prison, the butcher, the baker, you know, they, all these things come together. And after all of this happens, he gets back released from prison through all different reasons why the Lord uses him. For years and years and years, his brothers come back. And it says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 18, Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. They figured out that who Joseph was. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. Wow. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. If that wouldn't have happened, the nation of Israel wouldn't have gone through what they went through in the wilderness. Wouldn't have, I mean, this whole process, the Lord used Joseph. His perspective was that he understood the overall plan of God. When we're in an impossible situation, we need to recognize the overall plan of God. But you know, this requires trust in God's sovereignty and control. God's sovereignty and control. We need to trust that the Lord is in control of all things. One of the things that I see a lot of times in counseling people and helping people is that believers don't really understand who God is and what he can do. If we really grasp a hold of the creator of the universe who created every single thing that you see, who knows your very hair if you have it on the top of your head, who knows your, knew your eye color and how many breaths that you would take in your life. The creator of the universe who knew you that intimately before you were even made is in control of everything in the world is in the middle of your situation. You recognize his sovereignty. And his sovereignty just means that he's in control and he doesn't ask you for counsel. That's pretty cool. That's surfer. That's pretty great. That's awesome. Why is it so difficult? Well, it's just one of the keys. You recognize that he's in control. Number two, you realize the specific purposes of all things that God allows You realize the specific purposes of all things that God allows. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for literally the good. In the original language. For the good. To those who love God. To those who are literally the called according to his purpose. We throw these verses around a lot of times. You know, God loves us. God, God works together all things for good. But when you're in the trial of your life, boy, do you need to hold on to this stuff? This is reality. And this requires understanding from God's word. You hear Larry say it all the time. Understanding from God's word. It is great to read God's word. 
We should all be reading God's Word. But you know we should all be actually studying God's Word? It's really important to study God's Word. Now, you might say, well, what do you mean, Cliff? You have to go to a Bible school and blah, blah, blah. No. I mean, you have to look at it more than just a zuzu and a wham-wham, like a one-a-day vitamin that you would take. You've got to look into the Word and start to study the Word. Look at it. Don't be scared. Be a part. Because what the Lord said in John chapter 14, he said that there's going to be, when he leaves, a helper, the real Kakadesh, she's going to teach you things when you study his word. That's intimate study time. We should all be studying God's word because when we do that, we get understanding. When we get understanding, we get knowledge. When we get knowledge, we get strength and power. We understand what we should be doing. That's why we always say, read it, read it, read it, and pray. Read it, read it, read it, and pray. Why? Because you have to talk to the person who wrote it to tell you what it means by what he wrote. It's called relationship. (laughs) Simple. Oh, it's hard when you're in a difficult situation, when you're in an impossible situation. Number three. I like this one a lot. By resting in the power of God. I love to rest. For someone who has a hard time sleeping, I try everything, and I sometimes have a hard time sleeping. So when I can get a really good night's sleep, doesn't that feel so good? (gasps) Like when you roll over in that mattress, the one you finally find the right one. You know, you finally find the right mattress, and you, it's like, like two in the morning, and you, and you just roll over, and you bring the covers, and you, you know how you sink in? <sighs> There's nothing better in the world when you're tired to just go, oh, I'd rest. This is available to us in every time, everything that we do, just to let this stuff go. And it's not easy to do. But our job isn't to hold on to anything. Our job is to rest. Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. Remember in Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar takes them because they didn't want to worship his gods. He puts them all together. He throws them into the fire. He says, like the fourth one, like the son of man, sitting in the midst of the fire with you. They came out. And this is, this is my most favorite part of this whole story. It's a little tiny part of the story. Though they were saved out of the fire and that all these miraculous things happened. But this little tiny uh, part of verse 18. I, I love this. It says, but even if he does not save us from the fire. He said, let it be known. Our king that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, we're not going to even do what you say even if we die. That's courage. Then, in verse 27, the satraps, the perfects, the governors, and the kings, the high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on them. The bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed. Nor were their trousers damaged. Now here it goes. Nor had the smell of smoke even come upon them. How many of you have been to a fire pit at the beach on the weekends? (laughs) You come home from the fire pit at the beach on the weekends and what stinks really bad? Your clothing like smoke. If the fire was the trial... 
and the presence of the Lord was the protection, then if we're in an impossible situation and we trust him and we don't run outside of his perfect plan, when we get through the trial, we will not smell like the trial. We won't smell like smoke. And I can tell you, many times being in trials, I've come out smelling like smoke. I didn't handle them well. What happens? Well, smoke could be your attitude. I'm so tired of this stuff. You know, our self-talk. How people to talk to me. And tre- I, I, uh, oh, I forgive it, but you know. Smoke. So you came out of the trial and you had a little bit of smoke on you. Or you want to gossip and talk about how nasty everybody is and going through the trial, if it's interpersonal. Or if there's a miraculous provision, financial, you want to think through everything and their motives of why this is happening. Smoke. If we trust in the Lord and we depend on him, And what he can do, we won't smell like smoke when we get through the trial. It requires a dependency upon God and what he can do. I will do it. I will depend on you no matter how I feel, no matter what I see, no matter what my preconceived assumptions of the situation, I am going to depend on you no matter what. That's relational. I like it. It's simple. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, operative word, according to the power that works within us. What is that? What's the power that works within us? The advantage. He said, To him be the glory in the congregation and in Messiah Yeshua to all generations forever and ever. Interesting thing, when we trust in the Lord, he is able to do far more abundantly. That's not what we think he might do. That's much more than we would ever know he could do, far more abundantly, according to what? Beyond what we think or ask or pray for or do anything. But it's according to the power that's within us. You mean I diminish God's power when he gives me him? No. The word according to means it's alongside of. He has all power. So what's available to you is all power. David had it. I can imagine killing all those Philistines. How do they think they did that? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. You know, like a superhero going through and killing all those guys. I mean, there was, that power is available to you. Now, we don't want you to go do anything crazy, okay? <laughs> but come on. Simplicity of who we are as believers. What a blessing it is that we have these things available. Paul said, Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Ah, it's good stuff. Last, what's our practice By responding with praise. Job said, a guy who went through some trials, huh? Chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gives us, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
no matter what. Our Acts story, I was talking to you earlier. After Paul was locked in chains, he's in the prison. You would think he would be so down on himself and everything. And in Acts 16, verse 25, it says, When they were in stocks and in midnight and darkness in the prison, about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Wow, there it is, the key again. Thanking the Lord for everything that he does. This requires thanksgiving for all that God has done and is doing. We have to thank him. Sometimes it's not too popular. Sometimes it's not comfortable. But it requires thanksgiving. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Messiah. You ever ask yourself, what is God's will for my life? Two places in the scriptures. One says, Thessalonians, keep away from sexual immorality, for that is God's will in your life. And number two, you want to know what God's will is for your life? Be thankful. Why? Because a thankful heart means you understand that he's in control. It's simple. We are thankful in all things. I'll close with this. Yeshua had been in an area where there was a rich young guy. He had his Giorgio Armani robe on with his gold Rolex Egyptian bracelet. He had a big silo full of stuff. He was a rich guy. Matthew 19. And Yeshua goes to him and he comes to Yeshua and he says, What can I do to be saved? What can I do to be blessed? What can I do to have more? Yeshua said, oh, be obedient. He said, I have been obedient to the Torah. Everything in the Torah, I've kept it all. Everything, I've done everything perfect. Just like I was taught as a little young boy. And Yeshua said, okay. Well, this is what you do. You go sell everything you got, give it all away. Ah, you mean the gold... Rolex bracelet <laughs> and my Rolls camels? <laughs> and Yeshua said, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. And said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Yeshua said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, what's it say? All things are possible. (laughs) When you are in an impossible situation, it's the best place to be in your life. Because all you do is trust in him. Because with men... It's impossible. But with God, let's say it together. All things are possible. Let's pray. Thank you, Abba. Thank you for your presence and your power. Thank you for our salvation, which is in Messiah Yeshua. Thank you for giving us what we need, not what we want. Thank you for 
everybody in this room right now. Thank you for teaching us things that are so simple and so basic, but we can run so far ahead of you so many times because it's tough. Thank you for bringing us into impossible situations. Thank you for allowing us to suffer a little bit. Thank you, thank you for giving us more of a clarity of our walk with you. Thank you for your love and your grace and your kindness and not giving us what we deserve. I pray for each person in this room, Lord. I ask you to touch them and strengthen them. I pray right now if they don't know you through our Messiah Yeshua that he died and that he was buried and he rose again to forgive them of their sins. I pray that today would be the day that salvation knocks on their door. I pray also, Lord, for each one of us in an impossible situation right now. We need you. We need your power. We need your touch. We need your comfort. The balm of Gilead betwixt our breasts. Comfort us today, Lord. Help us to serve you more, to keep more of a focus on you so that many people through our impossible situation would see your presence. They would see your power. They would see your peace. And that you would be glorified in everything that you allow us to go through. Thank you for what you do in our Messiah Yeshua's name. Amen.